the task old England is out to perform with Russia and France to assist. And some help now and then from the brave Belgian men. And it's this to defeat the male of fish. It's a terrible task and we had to combine. But together we'll wind up the one. Well, hello, and welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Well, we have been working our way through some of the works of Barbara Tuckman, two of her books, uh, The Guns of August and The Proud Tower. We just finished up our look at The Guns of August over the last few episodes, and now I'm going to start a four-part series where I examine The Proud Tower. Uh, the Proud Tower was written in 19, was published in 1967, and it, so that means it was about five years after The Guns of August. Now, I sort of promised I didn't want to talk too much about The Guns of August or World War I in general when I look at the book. I, I want to, you know, study this period, because the, the Proud Tower co- covers like 1890 to, to the early 20th century, right up to World War I. It's hard for anyone to look at this period and not, not kind of fall into this like the titanic syndrome right this idea of making it a metaphor making everything a metaphor for what would come right because we're really looking at a society that was about to implode a system that was about to destroy itself in in not just one but two world wars and it's hard for historians not to kind of think about that and 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 ponder that and it's hard for anyone reading to do that and and tuckman doesn't really do that herself i mean she kind of says in her introduction to this book that she wants to get at this society on its in its final moments. And, um, you know, I don't know if that's the best way to look at this period, actually. Um, but she does say it's not all like gloom and doom. It's not like it's a society totally seen where it's going to go. Right. There's optimism. There's there's uh, pessimism. There is ups and downs, there's uh, conflicts, and all this stuff is going to be worked out in various degrees in, in, the, in the course of the 20th century, of course. Um, you know, like the first chapter dealing with the, the British aristocracy, that's something that does get resolved uh, over the course of the 20th century in the, in the rise of a, of a more democratic system, uh, the decline of the aristocratic class. And, and what's responsible for that? Well, just as in the rest of Europe, World War I, of course, has a big role to play in the destruction of the of the landed aristocracy or at least a lot of its established power so that's always going to be on our mind but i want to avoid it so much i want to take these chapters these eight chapters of the prov tower uh as as vignettes which is kind of how tuckman presents it so in her introduction she she actually says like i could have rewritten this book with eight different vignettes and it'd be in, I would not repeat myself and I wouldn't have repeated myself at all. And I could, in fact, have written a third book, The Proud Tower Three, uh, with eight other stories, uh, vignettes. And she still she says I wouldn't have repeated myself there either. So it's really there's a randomness to her topics, um, which is a little bit frustrating for maybe someone who's a more professionally trained historian who wants a clear historical narrative. She's not giving us that. She's giving us uh, eight stories and each story you know is is self-contained it could be read separately actually you don't have to read these these works together at least i don't get the sense you you'll have to um but they're all really good i i think uh i haven't read all of them yet but the ones i've read they're all really good dealing more with political history dealing more with uh you know not the view from the top in every case the second chapter is on the anarchists and, and i'll get to my feelings about that chapter 
later on in this episode, there is something kind of, uh, I mean, her she is sort of looking from the top. It's the same way, it's the same problem I sort of had with the Guns of August, where it kind of looks at the war from the point of view of the planners. Um, and she does the same thing here. It might just be her approach. Yeah, I think it's, we, it, it's most re- revealed in how she approaches the anarchists in the second in the second chapter. But anyways, I think that's all I really have to say to set up what this this book is. It's good. It was Tuckman's favorite book. Um, and I think it's one that more people would enjoy reading now than maybe the Guns of August, unless you really do dig that kind of military history and, uh, you know, all the that those kinds of stories that we got in that last book. You know, I found it at times a little tedious, but I didn't find that here. I found I was engaged through through everything I read. So my plan here is just going to look at two of these vignettes in order over four over four episodes. It, it will, you know, the book's about 400 pages, it's a little bit longer than that, but it, it's, it's like 450 or so. So that'll be fine. We'll just look at these uh, these one after another and, and see what kind of lessons they have for us. Well, actually, I, I, there's something else I want to say before we get started about this book. And again, there's, a, there, there's plenty of things to criticize about this book. It's just really, really engaging. It's like, it's like it works as literature. Um, and it works as how history, at its best, can be written. But it also is, it also is a warning in, in how we tell our stories and what is, I think, what enters into popular history. Because Tuckman is a popular historian, was a popular historian, right? And a lot of history is written for a popular audience. And I guess the, the kind of the old observation we can make about this, you just go through a Barnes & Noble or Borders when they were around and you look at what's there. Um, I, this, I don't see this on Amazon because I don't have, you know, my algorithm sets me to what I'm interested in. Um, but it might be there too. But if you just go to like a, you know, a mass market bookstore that's that's trying to sell as many books as possible. You know, it's like military history, it's biographies, uh, you know, things like labor history, uh, you know, that kind of stuff you almost never see. And it's not it's not because of, it's like propaganda or something. It's just that stuff's not very popular. Right. But why is this stuff popular? Why uh, is the stories that Tuckman's telling here? so compelling for readers and I, I think that's you know and it's it's not just stories to tell it's a story she doesn't tell right which bothers me and she she sort of says at the beginning like oh if i'd written this again I'd, i could have eight other chapters and that one of those might include the the lower middle class and it's like well yeah i, I want to know more about that right but that a book about the lower middle class in early early 20th century london you wouldn't find at at the bookstore either right you would probably find a biography of of someone like Sal- Lord Salisbury, right? Uh, Robert Cecil, who's covered in the first chapter of this book. You know, he's the kind of guy that, that people want to read about, even though he was a obnoxious, conservative, uh, an elitist, uh, a, a believer in the old regime, the English, old, the British old regime, to the degree that existed uh, still. And I think it, it did, and, and it drags on in, in remnants. But, you know, it was, on, it was fighting for its survival uh, against democracy. And, but he's kind of a compelling guy, right? He's, 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 he's interesting, and there's interesting aspects of, of their life. Um, you know, I don't think it's entirely this, though. I, I think, in some sense, other forms of media maybe are correcting this in ways that, that academic history is not. Like, I've you know, got shows like that Downtown Abbey, which deals with class 
issues. You have harlots, which is about the 18th century, of course, but that deals mostly with the lower class and the underclass. Um, although even they kind of fudge those rules a little bit in that show and, and give us uh, the interactions between this this working class and and the elite. So it's still a window into the into the upper class. So, uh, so uh, anyways, if you look at the chapters, let's go over these chapters briefly. The eight chapters in the Proud Tower. Number one, the Patricians, England, eighteen ninety five to nineteen o two. Two, the idea and the deed, the Anarchists, eighteen ninety and eighteen fourteen. Um, so the first is about England. The second is, is all about mostly Western Europe, but it's about the anarchists. Um, and that you think, oh, this could be a great chapter on the working class. Well, I'll tell you now, you don't get that. You don't get uh, much on la labor protests is presented as part of the backdrop to the anarchist movement. But that's not what she's focused on. She's not actually focused on the grievances of the anarchists um, in a specific degree. In fact, she's kind of condescending towards them. Then we have the end of the dream, the United States, 1890 to 1902. So we got a chapter about basically U.S. politics. Then Give Me Combat, France, 1894 to 99. Again, about French politics at the time. The Steady Drummer, The Hague, 1899 to 1907. And now we're getting into areas where I haven't quite gotten to yet. But um, uh, Neroism is in the Air, Germany, 1890 to 1914. Thinking that that kind of roughly corresponds with the reign of, of Wilhelm II. So I think we're going to get that. Uh, politics. Then we get another chapter on England, not Britain, by the way. She, she didn't use Britain for either of these. She uh, talks about England, even though they, they do cover British politics. So England, 1902 to 11. And then the death of Jerez, the socialist, 1890 to 1914. We'll see where that chapter goes. That might be an interesting chapter. But, you know, mostly this is political history mixed in with some aspects of, of, of social history. But so far, largely the social history of, of the upper class. So there's good and bad here, but the book is called A Portrait of the World Before the War, 1890 to 1914. And we don't get the world. We don't even get Europe. We don't get Eastern Europe. But she, she pirouettes about why. She, she's always conscious about not including Eastern Europe. But she just sort of says, it's a different tradition. It's, it's not relevant to my story. The same way she sort of downplays Russia in The Guns of August. Uh, at least it's a major player in that book, but it's the least she's in, she's least interested in that one in that book here eastern europe doesn't even make an appearance southern europe rarely makes an appearance you get a little bit about the anarchists of italy and spain but they're just there kind of on the margins so the vast majority of europe's not even here and so we get a couple of chapters one chapter on the united states um and of course we have nothing about the rest of the world right uh now of course western europe is dominating the world system at the time, so it's hard not to avoid some discussion of the colonies. Uh, South Africa makes an appearance because the Boer War was something that uh, 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 Lord Salisbury had to deal with during his prime ministry. Uh, but it's always just as satellites to the main story she's trying to tell, which is really from the perspective of the core. Um, so that's that's I guess a, a bit my more meta criticism of more my my over my big picture criticism of the book is it's it's a bit selling itself as what it's as something more than what it is, um, but it's still kind of good. I, I still think it's worth checking out. But this is this is probably a book I wouldn't have read if it's not in the Library of America. And I think if you've been listening, you know the story about why I'm doing this book at all. It's because I sort of got cornered into it because I ran out of books in China and COVID hit and I couldn't get new books. Um, I got one shipment. 
but I didn't want to get more just because, uh, you know, every book that I bring, I'm, I'm going to have to bring take back. And here it's what? It's May 27th when I'm recording this. And I'm leaving on July 5th, COVID allowing. I'm going to go to Taiwan. So, you know, pretty soon I'll be shipping all these books back to to Taiwan. And it's just extra, you know, it's, it's costing me money to do that. So I, I made a choice not to buy too many more. So that's why I'm doing this one. But it's it's if I was doing like a series on history writing, it's, it's you know, academic history writing, this wouldn't be a top of my list, I think. Um, but here it is. It's it's it, I'm we're approaching it, I guess, sort of like literature. So enough on that. Chapter one. Um, oh, one more. I guess one more thing. Sorry, I keep uh, remembering things. It's got really great images. There's two photo essays that correspond with uh, the chapters, and they're really pretty good photo essays. They really, uh, I think, help you get a feel for the people. Mostly, they're the pictures of the people she's talking about because that's her interest. Her interest is the personalities. Of this uh, of this epoch, um, all right. So her introduction is pretty good, and, and you can tell from the introduction that she's definitely thinking about the Great War and the Great War coming. Um, but I'm making the choice of not trying to focus too much on that to to read these essays as narratives of this particular period, this this 25 year period of European history. Okay, chapter one, the patricians. So this chapter is, it's, it was subtitled England, 1895 to 1902, but actually it's, it's about Lord Salisbury. Uh, and he's a good figure to pick for this story, you know, because he is the la like that last of the great 19th century British conservatives. He, was, uh, he fought against the reform bill, the second reform bill, which expanded the franchise to essentially make um, uh, Britain, a patriarchal uh, democracy. You know, women still didn't get the right to vote until after World War One, but that—that's what opened up voting to, to I think most men. I, I don't quite remember the details of British history. The first reform bill opened it up somewhat, but the second reform bill opened it up much more, and it was opposed by, by people like Lord Salisbury. In fact, there's a pretty dramatic scene about his his anger and frustration at this. Um, so she starts out talking about his cabinet uh, that he formed. And his cabinet is basically, down to the last man, ar aristocrats. And of that aristocratic tradition, which of course goes way, way back in, in British history. Right? And if you remember from your European history classes, you know, of course you have, after the Middle Ages, you have the rise of the middle class. And that presents a challenge to, to the aristocracy in various ways, especially commercial interest over landed interests you see the rise of the dutch republic for instance but land was still very significant right and much of the politics of 19th century england involve uh the debate over things like land right this is what the corn laws were essentially about if you remember the corn laws of the 1830s um the you know you had the, of course the the famine in, in Ireland and rising food prices and working class pushed off the or uh, peasant class pushed off the land needing to buy food. The food prices were high. So the Corn Laws were an effort to deregulate basically the food market so you could have cheaper imports. Who was opposed to that? Well, the landowners are opposed to that, of course, because that meant less income for them if they had to compete with, you know, continental or American grain. It would, it would hurt their bottom line. So, you know, and it's pretty clear that 
you know, people died because of, of and people suffered. Uh, and if you read David Ricardo and the economists of the early 19th century, they're obsessed with uh, like the price of food. Malthus, of course, is someone we all will study at some point in our lives, I think. And he was also obsessed with the price of food. So land and its power were, were key political issues at the time, right? So, uh, and she actually mentions here how powerful they are and how land is concentrated still in the hands of the aristocracy. So although you do have a rising middle class and you have the rise of industrial capitalism and a merchant class, and you have all these new forces moving up in society, we still can't downplay how powerful the, conser the conservative aristocracy is. And they're almost all conservative. I, I don't get the sense reading this chapter that there are too many of the patricians who uh, are dem Democrats um, to, to any sense. Um, and Lord Salisbury then is like the representative of that, that class. And I think this is a good essay. Uh, it actually, is my, I think it's my favorite so far, even though I don't think much of these people. I think it's a really great vignette describing the lives, the mentality, the perspectives uh, of people like Lord Salisbury and the people in his cabinet and, and understanding why they thought the way they did and what they did as, as, um, you know, as, as politicians. Now, this chapter ends basically with the death of Queen Victoria and shortly after the retirement of Lord Salisbury. I think he died a couple years after that. So I think he maybe died in 1903 or something. So he basically, when he retires, he's, he doesn't live much longer after that. But it's around the time of the death of Queen Victoria, too. So it's like the end of the Victorian age, which was maybe the last great age of the aristocracy in British history. At least I think that's what the way Tuckman is trying to present it. So it's a fairly long chapter. It's about 60 pages. Uh, the anarchist one is maybe 55 to 60 pages as well. So they're both pretty long. Um, so what what's here? Um, Obviously, I'm not going to get into all the details, but um, we get really a good window into the personality of Salisbury. Someone I didn't know much about, Robert Cecil is his, is his name, um, you know, his given name. But once his father died, he became Lord Salisbury, and that's, that's how he was known. In politics, he eventually was elected to the Parliament, the House of Commons, although before that he was in the House of Lords. And then he's... Um, you know, eventually becomes prime minister towards the end of the life of Queen Victoria. So there's that. Um, now, much of the chapter, the chapter is, it talks about his career, especially his prime ministry, but it's interspersed with their philosophy, especially their resistance to democracy, but also their, their life. There's a fascinating like four or five page section just about their obsession with horses and equestrian affairs and how they all had to have horses and a lot about their social life too, um, you know, the, the kind of the parties they have, the London elite culture. That's really fascinating stuff. It's just how close knit this culture was, right? They spent part of the year in townhouses in London and other parts of the year in their estates. You know, the po political time they spent in London, and but that was really a, you know, where they interacted uh, as members of the, of this elite class. Um, What's at the heart of their philosophy is their feeling of entitlement to, to have power and to rule. Quote, the ruling class did not grow rulers only. It produced the same proportion as any other class of the unfit and misfit. 
The bad are merely stupid. Besides prime ministers and empire builders, it had its boundaries and club bores. It's a feat, Reggie's and Algie's caricatures in Punch, discussing the waistcoats and neckwear. It's long-legged guardsmen whose conversation was confined to ha-ha and wastrels who ruined themselves through drink, racing, and cars, as well as his normal quote of the mediocre who never did anything noticeable, either good or bad, end quote. Um, so, you know, I think about this class, and it's hard not to see them as kind of a useless class, right? Um, you know, kind of, I'm thinking of like the gentry in late, or the same time period in Chinese history, the gentry kind of became that same kind of decadent class that didn't seem to do much, uh, and though they still had a lot of power and wealth, and so they became kind of an obstacle to any change. But what's different here is in China, eventually they lost their rule, and the rule fell to warlords and, and revolutionary movements and things like that uh, over the course of the early 20th century. But in England, they still had this capacity to rule. They still had enough educated people, enough ambitious people, and enough institutionalized power to enforce their will. Or at the very least, in the traditional conservative way, to slow down the progress of, of other of broader social reforms. You know, whatever you were getting under Gladstone liberal governments, you weren't going to get under Lord Salisbury's, obviously, someone who really hated democracy. Um, but so the way she sums this up is, quote, despite such accidents, meaning those reject types, the ruling families had no doubts of their inborn right to govern, and on the whole, neither did the rest of the country. To be a lord, wrote a particular picturesque example, Lord Ribbonsdale in 1895, is still a popular thing. Known as the ancestor because of his regency appearance, Ribbonsdale was so handsome, so handsome a personification of the patrician that John Singer Sargent, glorifier of the class and type, asked to paint him. Unquote. I'm not too familiar with his, his artwork myself. But they, they, just, they have this entitlement, right? They, and there's not a kind of cultural... Or, or a real strong intellectual challenge to that, that power that they, that, that they hold. Yeah, it, seems, it seems in English history, they just kind of work away at it slowly through different reform movements, but there's never that moment when that class gets overthrown like you have in, in many other countries with the, with the revolution, right? Of course, the aristocracy survived the English revolution of the, of the 17th century, although not without debate. Right, the, 18th, the 17th century was a period where people did debate uh, the rights of these people to own land. The diggers, the ranters, the levelers, uh, the other forces in the English Civil War. But I don't want to get too much off topic here. Um, I think some of the best stuff in this chapter look at the London elite culture. Um, their sporting events, their connections. That's a big part of it. Their, 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 how small this aristocracy was and how much power they had in terms of their land and just how inbred they are not necessarily literally in this case i i mean inbred in their their culture and society and in their where you know who they associated with and it's you see that in lord salisbury's cabinet because it's all those same people she even talks about how fat they were at one point quote fed upon privilege the patricians flourished five at least of the leading ministers in lord salisbury's government were over six feet tall, far above the over stature of the time. Of the 19 members of the cabinet, all but two lived to be over 70. Seven exceeded 80 and two exceeded 90. Uh, so they're living a long time and they're, they're, they're healthier because they have more food, but the, you also get the sense they're like Lord Salisbury fat. And Salisbury himself died of essentially being, uh, being a big fatty. She gets a little bit into the foreign policy of these people, and this is the era of splendid isolationism, which is really kind of a funny way to talk about it because 
Britain, it's the height of their empire too, right? And that's the moment in which the British Empire, the sun never set on it. They're involved all over the world. You have the Boer War, um, the major colonial conflict of Salisbury's uh, prime ministership. And, but still, it's called splendid isolation. Why? Because they're trying to avoid the European entanglements, the, the alliance systems that Bismarck created and that France established with Russia eventually. They're trying to avoid all that and stay above of it. And it gets known as splendid isolationism. And in fact, Salisbury himself was so aloof about foreign policy that he was his own foreign minister, um, at least for part of his the period. I don't know if it's for the whole thing, but she mentions here how he was a uh, kind of do, you know doing his own foreign policy, and it didn't seem to be doing that much of it. So that there's kind of an aloofness to to this. But at the same time, you have this huge empire, this massive, massive empire that stretches all around the world. Um, so that's all I really wanted to say about this chapter. It's it's quite good. Um, we get a picture here of Lord Salisbury uh, in the in these in these uh, es picture essays. We get uh, we get Sargent's portrait of Lord Ribbonsdale, the medic I just mentioned, the Wyndham sisters, also by Sargent, one of the estates of the elite Chatsworth. Um, now, as for their wealth, I, I looked this up. Like Lord Salisbury was worth when he died something like. In present-day dollars, $33 million. Which doesn't seem like a whole lot of money compared to the elite of, of today. I don't know how that was computed because he certainly had a lot of land, like you know, tens of thousands of acres. But um, he had title, he had connections, he had enough wealth. Um, I don't know if maybe he wasn't the most wealthy aristocrat around. Um, certainly in, in inequality, but when you think of the inequality we have today, where you have people, you know, billionaires, and maybe we'll see a trillionaire before long. You know, it's it seems it's another it's another level, but definitely when you see the pictures of the house of the houses they lived in, wow, they're really they're castles essentially that they're they're living in. But anyways, that's all I really want to say about Lord Salisbury. But I, I enjoyed that chapter. Um, then we get to chapter two, um, and this one, uh, I don't know, the idea and the deed, the anarchists, eighteen ninety to nineteen fourteen. It's, uh, to be to be fair to Tuckman, this is a hard time to talk about the anarchists because what makes the anarchists known in this period are these assassinations of heads of state, right? There was like six of them, including uh, McKinley in the United States, uh, the Russian emperor and others who were assassinated by anarchists, right? Uh, not, it's not the assassination of World War I wasn't an, uh, an anarchist. That was a Serbian nationalist. But assassinating heads of state was a thing that anarchists were doing, right? And, you know, the idea here was called propaganda of the deed. And this was something many anarchists at the time embraced. This idea that you do a bold act like assassinated head of state, and this will inspire the working class to rise up. That's sort of the plan, I guess. It's not a very good plan. I don't think many anarchists today embrace it. It's not core to anarchist thinking Prior to that, revolution is, they're, and they're not shying away from violence, but this idea of like throwing a bomb into a, into a, a dinner party is somehow that that will inspire the revolution or shatter the confidence of the ruling class or something like that. That's, that was an idea very unique to the end of the 19th century. And I think most anarchists nowadays maybe, you know, they're not going to do the same thing. I, I don't I don't want to speak for them, but... I, I just get the sense that this is seen as a problematic strategy, to say the least, uh, just because it's not effective, not because these people don't deserve a, uh, a bullet. Uh, many of them 
certainly did. But it's, and I'm not saying tyrannicide is not legitimate. I, I think that is as well. But is it an effective strategy? Is, this, is it going to bring about the revolution you're hoping for? I don't know. Even in the United States, you had like, and it's mentioned here, like the Berkman case. That, that one makes more sense to me, like uh, Alexander Berkman is trying to assassinate really the guy who's like the strike breaker, right? Someone who's trying to bust the strike in, the, in Homestead, right? That's, uh, you know, you're trying, you're targeting someone specifically for what they're doing against a movement that's active on the ground um, rather than just, you know, a symbol of, of the regime. Um, but so what I'm trying to say is in Tuckman's defense, this is if this is the one of the most conspicuous strategies of anarchists at the time, you have to talk about it and it has to be your focus. But it, I think it just misrepresents what anarchism is in the, in the whole, that if you were to read this as an introduction to anarchism, you'd be uh, not only disappointed, but if if you if you're coming out knowing nothing about anarchism, you're going to get the wrong idea, I think, about the movement and see it as kind of mis. Uh, misled by by a kind of an obsession with violence so the structure of this chapter was um well she says that you know unlike the last chapter where we could focus on lord salisbury it's harder to do with the anarchists because the anarchists the the figure that's at the center of the story is the idea and she never really tells us what that idea is she doesn't really care to break down anarchist thought why they're against hierarchy, what that even means. They're not just against state structures, uh, not just against capitalism. They're against hierarchy, right? And they're against hierarchy in many forms. Many, one of the great anarchists of this period, Voltaire Declare, uh, you know, certainly not someone who said violence against tyrants is, is wrong. She, she supported it, but she was primarily a writer and a poet, and she gave speeches. Uh, and that's what a lot of anarchists were doing. And, and Tuckman talks about their journals and their magazines, but she's a little bit dismissive of them, I think. Um, and when she talks about who supports anarchism or where like the social con conditions that bring out anarchism, she, uh, she just picks the low-hanging fruit of, of how crappy late 19th century European life is, was for most people. Quote, They came from the warrens of the poor where hunger and dirt were king, where consumptives coughed, and the air was thick with the smell of latrines, boiling cabbage, and stale beer, where babies wailed and couples screamed in sudden quarrels, where roofs leaked and unmended windows led in the cold blasts of winter, where privacy was unimagined, where men, women, grandparents, and children lived together, eating, sleeping, fornicating, defecating, sickening, and dying in one rooms, where a tea kettle served as a wash boiler between meals, old boxes served as chairs, heaps of fall straws, beds, blah, blah, blah. And she goes on like this for, that's just half the paragraph, and it's all like this. Now, not only does this such a cliche depiction of the working class at the time. It's also kind of an insulting one. It's like how the reformers, middle-class reformers in the United States, when they would go to middle-class or working-class communities and they'd say like, oh, you don't keep good house, right? It's, it, your, your house is dirty. It's like, you're so poor, you can't even keep your house clean. Well, really, that's bullshit, you know? First of all, like, they, that wasn't the center of their lives, their homes, in many cases. And yeah, they... They did the best what they could, what they had. But it doesn't mean they didn't respect and want to have a clean house. This idea that they were indifferent to this. And they're just the... Uh, it's almost like I'm thinking of how Jack London even describes some of the working poor and the people of the abyss. Just with this ennui about them and, and how they're kind of being left behind. And, and they're, not, they're not presented as historical agents, right? They're, they're there. 
this class is there and then the anarchists come as sort of like the saviors to it to to redeem them so that's one thing i don't like about this chapter and i don't like this focus on violence and the propaganda of the deed because i think that reduces anarchism to to that i don't like how she's talking about the the working class here at all i, I just think it's it's kind of insulting and reductive All right, that's kind of my overall feelings about this this chapter. Um, there, there's a good section on Kropotkin. Uh, we get a little bit of backdrop on Proudhon. That's that's really backdrop of anarchist ideas. Um, she's got a good section on on Kropotkin though, and Kropotkin is such a fascinating, wonderful person. He was a scientist from the aristocracy. He spent time in prison. He traveled quite a lot. He was a respected scientist. He published scientific works. Uh, one of his best books, Mutual Aid, is a this straight-up work of evolutionary science. It's not, I mean, it's got anarchist themes, and anarchists read it for insights into things like the question of human nature. But, you know, it's presented as a work of science. It's, it's, not, uh, it's, not, it's not like some of his other works that are more overtly anarchist in theme and more political. Uh, speaking of that, though, there's a wonderful AK Press anthology of Kropotkin's writing, um, uh, which was published a few years ago now, which focuses on Kropotkin's uh, overt politics. It's called Direct Struggle Against Capital, which it's, it's actually challenging the idea that Kropotkin was just looking kind of at science and the long trajectory of human evolution and said, no, he was uh, you know, calling for conf confrontation with capitalism in this generation. So it's an important anthology to at least be familiar with. Uh, but overall, I think her section on Kropotkin is not too bad. It's it's fairly sympathetic, and he's also not really. I think I don't get the sense he's with that propaganda, the deed kind of fetish. Uh, we got some stuff on Malatesta too, so she kind of does a tour of Europe and the different anarchist movements. We get a little bit on America uh, with uh, uh, like Berkman and the in the Homestead strike, which is great. We got Johann Most. We got a little bit also about the Haymarket that actually came up earlier in the chapter. Um, so there's some good stuff here. There's a little bit on their social life, and and Tuckman sort of reduces it to their their kind of sexual libertineness uh, and the fact that they seem to have a lot of love affairs that were kind of dramatic and exciting for for people. I don't know what to make of that, but uh, you know I'm not sure it's more or less than any other class of people at the time but you know there were anarchists at the time who advocated free love so let's let's give but she doesn't get into that she doesn't talk about that philosophy of sex at all she she just talks about their the drama behind the scenes there um so then we get a tour of the world so we get different anarchist movements and events and you know bombings and and sparks of violence throughout europe during this this period um assassination attempts whatever and it disappointed me that's 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 all i can really say about this chapter um it's i mean here's how she sums it up here however self-limited its acts however visionary its dreams anarchism had terribly dramatized the war between the two divisions of society between the world of privilege and the world of protest and the one it shook away a social conscience and the other as its energy passed into syndicalism it added the quality of violence and extremism into the struggle for power of organized labor. It was an idea which men, which drew men to follow it, but not because of its built-in paradox. Sorry, but 
because of its built-in paradox, could not draw them together into a group capable of concerted actions. And here, jump it back in here. Now, at this moment, she makes this old-fashioned libel against anarchism that they're, they're, because they're anarchists, they couldn't form movements, uh, which is what the, it's kind of the tanky critique of, of anarchists all the time. It's, you still see it all, the, all over the place online. Uh, to finish up the chapter, she writes, it was the last cry of individual man, the last movement among the masses on behalf of individual liberty, the last hope of living unregulated, the last fish shaken against the encroaching state before the state, the party, the union and organization closed in. Um, that's really dated now. I, I think if you look when it's written, it, it certainly looks like anarchism had its heyday, maybe here and then a, some outbreaks in the 30s in Spain uh primarily uh but yeah the stalinist the leninist model wins out because it was it seemed to be successful and that's that's that same thing happened in china right where you had early socialism was very very much influenced by anarchism and kropotkin some of the first socialist writings to come into china and translate into chinese were anarchist writings by people like kropotkin but eventually after, after the Russian Revolution, Leninism became the, the model, right? And, and I think it's a little unfortunate that, well, I guess it's not unfortunate, it's just reality. She doesn't know that anarchism would come back and it would be a major part of the left in later decades. Uh, and there's a whole other, and first it doesn't fully go away, but you know, it, it comes back and I, and I think we're in an era now where, where anarchism is, is once again a significant philosophy uh, in the political conversation among the left. Um, so anyways, that's, that's that. Maybe, maybe I'm too hard on her because of, maybe she couldn't have written it differently because of, of it does seem, if you just bracket it with 67, that that's that the early 20th century, it's, it's state socialism. Is, is what dominates uh, the left, for better or for worse. But anyways, that's the first two chapters of the Proud Tower. So um, in the next chapter, in the next episode, I'll look at her chapter on the United States and her chapter on France. Um, so that's it. So I don't know. Let me know what you think. If you read this book, um, let me know your thoughts on those chapters or the book overall. Send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com or you can find me on Twitter. You can also find me, you can just leave a comment here too. Uh, leave a review on iTunes. That would also help me out. Um, but that's it. Uh, thanks for listening. I'm really enjoying this book and I'm looking forward to getting into the rest of it. Oh, despite my reservations about chapter two, I, I think this book has some value. So especially chapter one is really, really good if you want to understand that arist aristocracy. So that's it. I'll see you next time. Right.